two full days of practice, and we appreciate you for it. Know what it takes, inwardly and outwardly, our bones, our muscles, our emotions, and our relentless thoughts. Am I doing it okay? Can I do it? The first time I was uh, banned from Burma in 1998, um, I there was a chance I could get uh, a visa in Bangkok because the ambassador and his wife were students of uh, Saida Ulakana, who we teach with in our annual fusion retreat on the banks of uh, the western banks of the Irrawaddy River, across from Mandalay. And in, in, in fact, the ambassador and his wife uh, had been donating to our project, our Metadana project, our humanitarian project. Michelle and I lead. We've built his schools, supported hospitals, created an acupuncture school, and whatnot. Uh, so he was very enthusiastic. And it was one of the early beginning times of cell phone use, and he had a cell phone. And he called the military intelligence chief in, uh, in Burma, uh, who just said no. So I couldn't get in, but I was, I'd, we had so thought that I would be able to get in. Michelle and I, our daughter, Chandra, friends, and my 87-year-old mother. And they all went into Burma anyway and had a great time, stayed at the monastery. Um, and it was the first time for Michelle. And, and then she began to lead the retreats that I had started uh, some years earlier. Uh, with We call it a fusion retreat because we teach together, East and West, uh, ordained Sangha and lay Sangha, um, a traditional style of transmission, ancient lineage, contemporary way of making it relevant through our Western, our Western voice. And both Michelle and I had been immersed and had exceptional training from Upandita and Mahasi teachers. So... Um, it was her first time, and she often tells the story that, um, you know, one of the things that, because it was, she says, a fragile uh, body often, and allergies and whatnot, so she didn't know what to expect. So she, she often tells the story of being inspired that, you know, if my 87-year-old mother could be it, could do it, could be there and be in a monastery... Michelle could do it. <laughs> she could do it. So for most of the last, you know, 12 years, Michelle's been doing it. So it also brought that component of fusion of, of male and female, as well as monk and layperson and east and west combination. And I thought of that last night because, um, uh, you know, Pasha came to the Dhamma talk with the idea that he might give it course. 
And um, he did, in his own silent way. And everyone was surprised, including his parents, that he could sit here for an hour, <laughs> or lie, or squirm a bit, you know. And it's the same, the same thought, I think Michelle said this morning, you know, if Pasha can sit here, or lie, or squirm for an hour, you know, any of us can do this. So between a six-year-old and an 87-year-old, it gives us hope, you know, at least, that we can do another minute. And that's all we suggest. So actually, we just suggest another moment, it's moment by moment. And ultimately, that's, we, that's the reality that releases all the grasping in the mind, that the realization that there are only just the reality of moment by moment experience, arisings and passings. It's quite timeless in that way. And the sense of time is very conceptual and it's a rather heavy structure to carry it around. Before our thoughts become more free and fluid and guided by compassion and understanding and loving kindness, we notice how wearying it is to think and obsess and just the, the revolving nature of weighty thoughts and how light they begin to feel from, from practice in the realization that, like sensations and everything else, they're just so momentary. The moment we touch a thought with awareness, it's gone. And it's only the, you know, the absence of our attunement and awareness that thoughts arise and pass so quickly, they, they seem solid and ongoing and continuous. But then they begin to break up the field of metta you know, helps us lean back in the moment and realize that it lightens up our thinking mind. Much of the teaching traditions, and, and tonight I'm going to just give an overview of, um, of the immeasurables, the Brahma Viharas. Much of the teaching style, uh, and it's often, it's often thought by those who uh, like scholar practitioners who are most interested in the sort of very early, you could even say pre-Buddhist teachings, because the Buddha himself wasn't a Buddhist, right? He was simply a, a rebel on earth to dismantle belief systems and, and the oppression of dogmas and so forth. Um, so it's what's called early <clears throat> Buddhism is the uh, <clears throat> attempt to... Um, point to all the, the pre-tradition, pre-religious, pre-dogmatic weightiness of teaching. And it's and many people think that mostly he taught in allegory and in stories and in metaphors. And one year in, in the mid-90s, I went to uh, this cabin in, in a mountain forest in New Zealand, uh, where students of ours, Michelle's and mine, uh, started a, a retreat center in the late 80s. And, and um, I did a self-retreat for a month. And, and, for, uh, and I practiced from, you know, before the sun came up until, <coughs> until pretty late at night. But um, between 3 and 6 o'clock, between 3 o'clock and sunset, I, I studied um, 
what's called the Jataka Tales, 400, uh, 547 uh, stories of what are called Jataka stories or birth stories, stories of the, the Buddha-to-be, known as the Bodhisattva, and sometimes appearing as a you know, poor farmer, sometimes as a king, sometimes as a celestial being, sometimes as one of many, many animals. So in one of these stories, the, the Bodhisattva was born as, a, as a, a, an ox, a little baby ox. And he was uh, given to a poor farmer in exchange for um, a generosity that the farmer had done uh, for someone else. And the farmer treated this uh, little ox like his own child, you know, and, and, and fed him and groomed him and petted him and touched him and just had this just real intimacy and nurturing metta effect on him and compassion when he was sick and, and joy when he'd, he'd run around and the nature of the bodhisattva in this life as an ox, he had two great powers, uh, great strength and great compassion. And the compassion part, he was totally at ease with, with village kids coming out to their small farm and playing with him. You know, riding on his back, hanging off his horn, swinging from his tail. Uh, and his, and <clears throat> the ox was very patient. He brought so much joy to the poor farmer and to the kids that the, that the farmer named him Great Joy. Uh, and he grew into his fullness and his strength, and there's nothing he couldn't do. He moved the biggest boulders and plowed the fields and uh, giant stumps in the way. Uh, and it was just um, so useful and um, uh, accommodating to all the needs. He could, eat, he could predetermine exactly what the poor farmer needed and be out working even before the farmer woke up. Uh, and yet he never disturbed anything. He didn't soil the front door area. He didn't um, soil the drinking water, never harmed a child and so forth. So one day, fully grown, great joy came up to the mud hut of where the farmer was inside drinking tea, mending an old book. And great joy stuck his horned head through the painless window and said, Master, I would like to help you. And uh, and the poor farmer dropped his book and spilled his tea, you know, and looked over and thought he was hearing things and, you know, went back, picked up his book, poured some more tea and went back. And again, great joy, this time kind of clearing his throat, said, Master, I would like to help you. And this time, the farmer really looked at him like, what, you know, I, I have an ox that can talk? And Great Joy said, listen, there are many, even more wondrous, mysterious things about the universe. I want to help you. And by this time, this, uh, the poor farmer was you know, in this state of mystification and wonder. And all they could do was just, yeah, okay, how do you want to help me? 
and in great joy said, I want you to go into the village and go to the, the, um, the, the finest tea shop. And when you see some refined, wealthy merchant come through the door, invite him for tea. Offer him some tea. You know, pull out one of your coins you have hidden underneath your house and pay for his tea. And then, and then I want you to wager with him that, that I, great joy, the ox can pull 100 carts filled to the brim with boulders around the village square tomorrow morning. And we'll meet under the mango tree at sunrise. And with all that articulation, you know, the poor farmer had nothing to do. Okay, okay you know. And so he went in a kind of stupor and, and blind faith. Um, he went into the village and he had this coin. He went into the tea shop. Uh, a wealthy merchant eventually came in. Uh, and because he was offered tea, he did sit down and respectfully receive the tea. And, <coughs> and the farmer said, um, I have an ox. You know, he's still in this sort of state of stupor. And the mer- merchant looked at him and said, yeah, well, I have 20 ox. I have 25 ox, oxen. Yes, the farmer said, but, but my ox, great joy, is very, very strong. Um, it's the nature of oxen to be strong, said the merchant. But, but my ox is probably stronger than all of yours together. My ox can pull a hundred carts filled to the brim with boulders around the village square and I'm willing to wager you a thousand pieces of money that tomorrow morning at sunrise under the mango tree we can meet if you can arrange the carts and great joy will show that he can do this. The merchant blinked and thought to himself, this guy's gone off his rocker a bit. Uh, But he accepted the wager. He said, okay. And thought to himself, boy, you know, it's an easy thousand pieces of money for me. Uh, And he agreed to make the arrangements. They left the tea shop and the merchant spread the word and all his people began to gather the carts and the boulders and word spread. became a rumor of this big festivity. You know, people said, a thousand pieces of money, a hundred carts, one ox. Our poor farmer, on the, uh, on the other hand, went home. And by this time, because of the nature of blind faith, you know, it's not verified by a personal experience, he began to have doubts. And so far he had a, he had a life of very close intimacy and friendship and trust with great joy. But he began to, you know, of course, doubt himself and then project that onto great joy. Like, I must must be crazy, you know. Great joy can't do that. Was I imagining all this? Was he he trying to, you know, rip me off or make a fool of me? And he just went back in a depressed and dissociated, disconnected way. And uh, that night... He slept and he had bad dreams. He dreamt of all the times that he ever did feel uh, betrayed or was betrayed or manipulated and chewed upon or um, 
broken hearted, broken friendships, shame, and so forth. And he woke up in a pretty sorry state. And he, he, he wasn't sure that what happened the day before was true. And he, he checked and found he only had you know, 999 pieces of, of, of money left. So he knew that he had done that. And he went out to the shed. And there was great joy, just cooled out, chilled, just flowing in his metta, compassionate state, swinging his tail, swatting flies, eating golden hay, and, and ready for the, for the trip. Uh, however, the poor farmer you know, didn't treat him as he normally did, didn't sort of only briefly and gruffly uh, brushed him off. Um, and he put a halter on him, which he rarely ever did. You know, why? Great joy knew what to do. He never needed a, a halter. And he even picked up a stick to use as a switch. You know, all his doubts, all his fears, just picking up all these defenses. And he didn't look very well at all. He was drawn and white, and he wasn't well-dressed. His shirt was tea-stained and whatnot. And they walked in, and Great Joy was aware of his mood, but thinking, well, maybe he'll come out of it. But when they got to the rise of the hill of the village and looked down and saw hundreds of people there, you know, in this festive mood, and he saw the hundred carts with all the boulders, and, and the poor farmer's heart sank to his feet. And they came on down in the staging area, and the merchant was there and all his refinery and all his people, and a giant yoke had been made uh, for great joy to bear on his shoulders to supposedly pull the hundred, hundred carts. And the merchant said, well, are you ready? And um, fearfully and nervously, anxiously, the poor farmer said, yeah, okay. And he really had lost by this time all, all trust, you know, all sense of loyalty, all sense of connection with himself, so obviously with great joy as well. So he didn't even, you know, touch or be tender, either with his body or his heart or his mind or his voice. Instead he said, okay, you beast, you know, and he's tried to act brave and strong, this sort of glib personality front in front of everyone else, and, and hit him with a switch. First time ever in all the years of raising him. Uh, it didn't hurt great joy at all. But, you know, hurt his feelings. And he felt he felt the disconnect with his beloved master, his, his father. Uh, the man who had cared for him and loved him. And thought to himself, beast is it, you know. Switch on my back? What's this about? So he just dug his his hoof, his hooves hooves. What do you say that? He dug them <laughs> deep into the ground. <laughs> uh, every time the farmer, you know, said move, go, and hit him with a switch, his hooves went deeper, like roots, into the ground, and he wouldn't budge. And of course, no one believed the whole in the whole possibility in the first place, just saw it as a spectacle and a, and, and a foolish kind of bet. 
So, in a short order, he, uh, the farmer conceded, turned over the rest of his 999 pieces of money, all that he had saved in his entire life. And, and the people were disappointed too, started throwing you know, rotten eggs and tomatoes and mangoes and papayas, and it was an awful scene. You know, we wouldn't have enjoyed being there watching that. And then they walked home. And the farmer never looked or touched once at great joy. Who himself was pretty cooled out, you know, pretty equanimous, quite aware of what had happened, and feeling a lot of compassion. That was one of his great gifts and strengths in this life, particularly for the farmer. You know, tuning into his pain. The proximate cause for, for compassion is seeing the helplessness of a being who's, who's suffering or in pain or in distress, and also feeling metta, loving kindness for his beloved master. And the proximate cause for metta is attuning to the, uh, the goodness in a being. And he knew the goodness was there. He just felt that it was buried and hidden and covered with this crust of armor, fear and anger and disappointment, feelings of shame. So they got back and still no connection between them. And the farmer went in and just put his head down on his table and began to weep. And soon great joy came again and stuck his horned head through the painless window and said, My master, why are you weeping? Why am I weeping? said the poor farmer. What are you talking about? You... You've tricked me, you've fooled me, you've betrayed me, you've made me lose all my wealth, you've made me the village fool. You know, why shouldn't I weep? Why shouldn't I be upset? And very calmly, with a honey, sweet, compassionate voice, great joy says, But Master, you know, whom betrayed who? Have I ever once not done what you needed to doing on your farm. You did not move big boulders and stumps. Have I ever soiled the front of your door or your drinking water pond? Have I ever hurt a child hanging on my horns or swinging on my tail or jumping on my back? Have I ever once done anything that you could feel as a betrayal or disloyalty or lack of love and connection? And the voice was so powerful and so loving and so compassionate it went right into softening the big boulder the poor farmer felt in his heart. You know, and his weeping turned from self-pity to tears of, of mindful remorse and appreciation and gratitude. And she said, no, Rachel, you have never once betrayed me or been disloyal or not loving or caring to me, to my farm, to children, to anyone at all. I'm sorry I treated you that way. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I do, said Great Joy. I forgive you. It's okay. So now, here's what I want you to do. <laughs> Go back to the village and bet 3,000 pieces of money. I know you don't have it, but the merchant doesn't know that I'll do the same thing tomorrow morning at sunrise under the, under the mango tree, pull a hundred carts around the village square. 
So something happened, you know. So something was revived. A faith this time that was not like a blind faith, but more like a verified faith, a confidence, a trust. And he went with this strength and, and uh, assuredness and went into, found, found the, uh, the merchant and said, you know, I have more money. I'm going to bet you again. I'll bet you 3000 tomorrow morning. Great joy will do what I said he'd do this morning. And the merchant thought to himself, you know, money doesn't fall off trees like this. It's just less work for me and more money. He said, sure, we'll do this again. And quickly the word spread and uh, people were set up for another you know, spectacle and a festive event where they could again throw rotten cabbages and tomatoes and you know, cauliflower or whatever um, when the failure occurred. So the farmer went home. And he just, for no reason at all, had this strength of, of faith and confidence. And that night he had really good dreams. All the times where he really felt seen, understood, recognized, acknowledged, uh, worthy, and woke up uh, feeling so fine, he, he put on his finest clothes that he had and had worn for years and years. And he went in very carefully, lovingly, brushed his beloved great joy and the touch was magic you know it had an immediate uh, mutual reciprocal effect of feeling care and compassion for each other you know not unlike uh, when Pasha was restless last last night and I, I touched him he immediately would look at me and smile and just chill be still and that's the effect you know on, on both great joy and the farmer no halter, no switch. And somehow great joy, just he looked bigger and he looked really shiny. And they both walked together and the farmer's arm around the huge back of great joy and great joy's tail around the waist of the farmer. <laughs> and when they stood at the ridge of the village, everyone looked up and said, you know, is that the same farmer? This looks like a really refined gentleman. And that can't be the same ox. He looks huge. It looks like his horns are hooking the clouds themselves. And this golden electric energy came coming off his body. So they walked down. And for a few moments there, doubt arose in the merchant and fear. And then he's the one who put on a front that morning. You know, he was a little worried. But still, it seemed like an impossible task. But here was this very different man, no longer appearing as a poor farmer, and this very powerful uh, ox who seemed more than an ox. They put this massive yoke on again, and just to be playful, great joy, you know, uh, folded his legs a bit faking it, you know, like, oh, this is really heavy. This is such a burden, although it was really nothing to him. Remember his two great powers, great compassion and great strength. And this time, the poor farmer went, put his arms around his neck and put a flower lay, sent from Hawaii, you know, <laughs> and said, okay, my friend, show them, show them all your, your great strength and your great compassion.
and he stepped back. And again, to be playful, uh, Great Joy just kind of inched forward, but then back and made sweat come out that it didn't need to come out. And, and so people put more bets, you know, against him, uh, which would, of course, increase the farmer's chances of getting even more than 3,000 pieces. And then finally he took a step, and the first cart jerked forward, and then the other 99 carts, and then a second step, and then a third and a fourth. And pretty soon he was like, you know, Wrangler the horse, one of the horses here, just squeezed with your knees uh, at his shoulder, and he'll leap into a canter. In the same way, great joy, just went into a, an immediate canter. And then even a gallop around and around the village square so many times with the hundred carts that the carts began to turn the square into a circle. And from then on, it was known as the village circle. Around and around until all the people were cheering and this time no rotten cauliflower or eggplant and tomatoes. Money and gifts and flowers, you know, seemed to be flying and flowing everywhere. And finally, he came to a stop. And the yoke was taken off. The merchant conceded, and and uh, and he paid his debt off. Uh, and all the people, too, offered more and more, so much that you know, it was sustained the farmer for the rest of his life. And then the two of them walked home, you know, just in very close proximity and intimacy, feeling that unconditional love, compassion joy, and the peace of equanimity for each other along the way. They say that, you know, great joy lived through many lives. And in this life, they say he lives somewhere around in the Vallecitos Valley. So if you look carefully when you're out for your walks, you know, don't mistake every cow for a cow. It may be great joy, the ox. Both the farmer and the great joy are within us. They live in our hearts. They always have. They've always been there. And they're why we practice. So let the story sink in for the rest of the retreat and then just see how it affects how we, how we treat ourselves. You know, and, and like mindfulness, it's hard to say what metta is exactly because it's a precognitive, preverbal quality and, and something that has no particular substance and no one kind of manifestation. manifestation. It's not just an emotion. You know, it's one of the three, of the four great spiritual emotions, uh, of which all emotions and all mental states eventuate into as we do our practice. Every emotion, every mental state that we feel and experience eventually become unconditional love, compassion, joy, or equanimity. It's not just a sensation of the body. It's not just a mental state. It's not just intention. It's all of those and more. And why they're, de- they're described uh, as, as, as immeasurable. 
You know, there are limitations. We only see a certain spectrum. Other beings see a wider spectrum of colors. We only hear certain timber and tones, you know. Elephants hear lower tones. And dogs and, and young people hear higher tones. Uh, and, and so our, our senses, though they become more refined, and you'll see by the third, fourth day, you, colors become very subtle, and you'll see more nuanced uh, uh, pastels and spectrums than you normally than we normally see, and hear more subtle subtly than the sounds we're normally used to, and scent uh, flavors and bodily sensation. All those become more tuned. Um, but they still will have their limits. The, the immeasurables are called immeasurables because they have no limit. You know, There's no end to the extent uh, of unconditional love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. As I mentioned yesterday morning, um, there's no evidence in any of the discourses whatsoever that the Buddha ever taught a um, conceptual imagination style of practice. It was a, t- uh, a very useful tool developed at least three or four hundred years later and is the most known foundational um, uh, practices for these immeasurables today. Um, and it's a skill to learn how to use concept and imagination to a certain point and then be able to let go so that the precognitive, preverbal, real, vivid, alive, visceral experience of love, compassion, joy, equanimity can then flow you know, like a fountain. Originally the Buddha taught uh, the unspecified radiation in all directions as, as, as we've been talking about simply calling up loving-kindness. And he'd do this, you know, teach a woman or a man, a nun or a monk. He'd say, you know, before, um, or on, in your path of insight, because the Buddha taught that loving-kindness uh, are, are the stepping stones to realization. That we harness the energy of, love, of metta and the other immeasurables uh, uh, to lead us toward full realization, enlightenment. Uh, and they're also, in every moment of pure metta, they're an expression of the liberated mind, the realized mind. So if we want to know what a mind of a fully enlightened woman, man, monk, nun looks like, well, it looks like those moments where you feel unconditional love in whatever way you do, bodily, emotionally, mentally, intention level, through the senses the unconditional love of everything we see, hear, smell, taste, and feel in the body. So the unspecified radiation was like um, the original way. Later on, he said ten directions. You know, call up loving kindness, feel it, abide in it, and send it in all the directions: north, south, east, west, and you know, northwest, uh, southeast, northeast, southwest, so forth up and down. And then, when you've done that, call up compassion, karuna. And when you've done that, call up mudita, empathetic joy, each time in the unspecified radiation or in the ten directions. 
And then when you've done that, upeka, equanimity, the balance, that wide, serene mind that holds all the opposites, all the fiction of this and that, and all the range of joy and sorrow that holds all that in understanding, total acceptance and knowing. And, and then, with those emotions, those spiritual emotions develop, see how it is. See nature in, in, the, in their southern Buddhist tradition called the Way of the Elders, Theravada, the term um, yata Buddha, which means as it is. In Zen, it's called suchness. Just see as it is. And that's that moment-to-moment seeing and not holding on to anything. And, and the cleansing that goes on, all the burdens, weights, hindrances fall away. What we do in retreat is not try for that, not expect it, not wait for it. But every once in a while there's a glimpse. Every once in a while it's a moment. And the power of that timeless moment, that glimpse, that limitless glimpse, uh, has, has an effect beyond our imagination. The power of that intention of pure love, compassion, joy, equanimity, has such impact and consequence for that moment of purification, but also it sends out into the universe such a powerful wave that it comes back. And if you've ever noticed, you know, the wake of a boat, or if you throw a, a stone in a pond, you see the rippling effects going out. And if you wait long enough and are patient, you see them coming back. You know, they go to the shore, and then they, and they come back again. That's a good explanation of the power of um, an intentional good thought, kind word, um, skillful bodily action. It has an immediate effect and rippling effects out into this ecology of our world and comes back. As Michelle said, And like the finger pointing to the moon, you know, the finger isn't the moon itself, but if we point to what isn't metta and um, learn about, you know, the masquerades of metta and the opposite of metta, it, it leads the heart naturally, organically. It's like when we put seeds in the ground, uh, we don't dig them up to see how they're doing. We leave them in the ground and let water and heat and the nurturing uh, nature of the soil itself do all the work. And that's what we're doing. Each moment we're planting these seeds and letting moisture, the moisture of metta, uh, the warmth of, of sun. One of the meanings of metta I mentioned the other morning is solar radiance. Another meaning Upandita likes to give is soft rain. You know, so so it's, it's so elemental and we can so use nature uh, the experience of nature and the metaphors of nature to feel that cultivation. And then that also helps our discerning awareness, the mindfulness, which is also innate, inherent in our being, 
a natural gift of being alive, of our consciousness, pre-cognitive, pre-verbal awareness. That's what begins to discern the difference. A masquerading, or what's called the near enemy of metta, is, is love with expectation. You can see that that's simple. Any kind of expectation makes it conditional rather than unconditional. Or love with a hook, you could say. And I use that word because sometimes you, you can feel it bodily. We feel hooked mentally, emotionally, or physically. We feel that hook. And then we realize, yeah, there's an expect, expectation about this practice or my feeling of love for someone or something or myself and so forth. And likewise, we investigate the opposites because they're sure to wash up. We use them as an armor. We use them as a survival strategy, as a protective measure, the armor of aversion, of fear, or that thick indifference of a leather crust over our heart, numbing out, dissociation. If we understand this really well, you'll know what we mean when we keep saying, send kindness to that stuckness. Because in truth, we can, we can bow in great gratitude toward all these armoring mechanisms <clears throat> that we began to create soon after we came out of the womb, you know, or that came in our genetic lineage or our karmic lineage from all the ways our ancestors were injured, all the ways we were injured in the womb, out of the womb, all the ways that love with expectation affected us as babies, toddlers, young children, teenagers, grown-ups, all along the way, from any direction. So we can bow in gratitude for the way that we've used these protective measures to keep some semblance of our worthiness protected, though we also often have forgotten them and lose touch, like the poor farmer. You know, he lost touch with his own feelings of, of worthiness or deservedness of compassion or to love or be loved unconditionally. <clears throat> Until the soft kindness and strength of understanding of great joy help melt those, those barriers, those protective measures. So we don't do this with force, you know. That's why we send metta to that leather crust over the heart or that stuckness, or the feeling of disconnect, or the fear of being pulled into a black hole, or swept away in a sea of emotion, or, or the stuckness. We send metta to it because eventually they're going to go. You know, they, were borrowed, they were borrowed armor. And the real protective powers are these innate forces themselves, these spiritual emotions themselves. Unconditional love, fearless compassion, enduring our empathetic joy, and the peace and wisdom of equanimity. So we, we want to explore and, and, and not think that it's just so one-pointed focus trying to get to some place of metta, some one single state or sensation. Whatever's washed up is exactly what we need to open to and feel. So we know what all the masquerades are, what all the kinds of 
love with expectation, and, and you know, and understand the ones that we could say are, you know, part of legitimate needs of being in in, in life and in relationship, sexual love, you know, sensual love, love of art and music and 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 beauty, and see the level of of, of grasping. If it's a legitimate need being fulfilled, it's part of our life. If there's an obsession, if there's a feeling or a sensation of a hook, you know, or a strong expectation, it's probably not doing us that well. It's probably not feeding us like other legitimate needs and desires. And the way we'll ultimately know is through the discerning wisdom and the purity of loving kindness. Because loving kindness can hold it all. And loving kindness, when it's up, none of the obsessive neediness or excessive expectation kind of love is there. There might be other kinds of personal love there, but that's just like our need for milk and water and food and air and so forth. And the binding, cohering, healing effect of metta, as I mentioned yesterday, when we're doing the standing meditation, that it, that it has this capacity to, to uh, saturate, to sink into, like Michelle was saying, water and sand, you know, or, or to fill a sense of our uh, uh, empty bowl of our being, to fill it. Uh, with a fluid of loving kindness, and therefore um, reconnect all the fragmented, scattered, shattered, fractured parts of our psyche, heart, mind, being. The binding, cohering, healing effect of metta. We can see that. We can feel that. We don't have to try for it. It's just what it does. It's it's metta that loves. You know, it's it's kindness that kinds. If you understand it this way, we won't be identifying and thinking that there's something we're doing or not doing. It's metta that does itself. It's mindfulness that's mindful. You know, we use language that often makes it feel like I'm being mindful or I'm not being mindful. But there's a fiction there. And, you know, the Buddha was careful to... Um, re- refer to concepts and speech as designators, as, as mere designators, not the reality. So we want, we want to get that sense. It's compassion that, that cares and an empathetic joy that celebrates and appreciates happiness. And the profound balance of equanimity that, that soothes our sense of being and holds the opposites of joy and sorrow, and any kind of opposite whatsoever. So, moving into um, what's called karuna, compassion, the proximate cause, as I said, being the ability to tune into our own or others' helplessness when we feel distress or anxiety or fear or pain or suffering of any kind. That attunement, uh, you know, when we think of a child like Pasha when he's when he falls off his bike, you know, 
and and uh, which he does a lot and bounces right back up. But sometimes he hurts himself, you know. And you immediately feel a care. You want is he all right? Are you okay? And you want to you feel this helplessness and fear, and the response is this immediate holding of care. It's karuna that cares, you know. It's compassion that feels and resonates with someone's pain. Not some separate I or me or self. That gets us into trouble. And then, then we get confused with the near enemy of compassion, which is might be pity, fear of, suf- of suffering or pain or anxiety, grief or sorrow. Again, like the metta, we use some of these qualities as a source of security. You know, some people feel grief all their lives and, it, and, it, and they're familiar with it. It becomes for them a kind of protection, even as the opposites do. Like the opposite of metta, we use anger or resentment or aversion as a shield from the sense of some outer harm that might happen or has happened. And likewise with compassion, the opposite of, is cruelty. But it can also, I also interpret that as manipulation or control. So the part of us that's controlling or tries to control or thinks it can control experience or life or other people, that kind of manipulation is a kind of shield. In the same way, we default into sorrow and grief then we can never really feel it. We do grieve, and, and we do feel sorrow, and we must build a shelter for grief and mindfully mourn loss and, and hurt uh, when it happens. But to mindfully mourn, to, to really feel sorrow and grief, allows it to morph into gratitude which is a form of compassion. When my dad was dying and I was, um, I was there with him, he was just checked out. You know, he'd been sick for eight months and then he just went. And uh, our daughter took my mom, you know, out to grieve in the hallway. And I wanted to just to be there. My dad had talked to him uh, and feel him. His body was still warm. Thank him. In, in the in the eight months of his illness, we had grown quite close again and healed a lot of old splits and and uh, feelings of grief and sorrow and separation. So we were very close again, and I clean him and wash him, hug him and kiss him. Uh, so I did the same when he was no longer breathing. And I felt the whole range, you know. I wasn't thinking of practice. I wasn't thinking of compassion. I wasn't thinking any Dhamma thoughts whatsoever. What I felt mostly was just being present. And what I felt it, I didn't think it. And in that umbrella, under that umbrella of presence, all the emotions were there. Grief, sorrow, you know, tears as I spoke to him, gratitude as I thanked him. Uh, you know, the only thing that wasn't there was the opposite of compassion. I felt no control or manipulation. I 
didn't need to pull them back. But that's something that can happen. You know, if, if we're not present and if we don't have the capacity to have this fearless compassion, I call it fearless because it's a care that's not afraid of being in the face of suffering or anxiety or hurt or sorrow. It's just there. So I, w- I was lucky to have the fruits of practice where I didn't need him not to die. You know, I wasn't trying to pull him back from life. But still, I was grieving the loss. So I was feeling some of the, the sorrow and grief and giving it shelter, which I did for some time afterwards as well. Um, I waited, actually, because of conditions in my life to go to a mountaintop and, and again, in a self-retreat in Burma, in a remote place in Burma, and just let myself feel all the grief for, for my father. But at the time, it felt really important to be present for his passing in whatever way his consciousness could feel my care. And, you know, and, and, um, you know when, when we die, just imagine who we want around us. Do we want someone around us who doesn't want us to die? Do we want someone around us who's so caught in the grief and sorrow that they can't let us, you know, move on. So either the near or far enemy uh, trying to control and manipulate um, or drowning in the grief and sorrow. Um, or, Or do we want someone there who's just really there? You know? Sure, with tears and but also with laughter, but mostly with presence to allow, to allow us to go. That, that's how we start to know what compassion is. You know, the difference, what might look like compassion, but isn't exactly compassion. How to work, build a, an abode to grieve, to feel sorrow, but then to let it evolve into gratitude and the purity of compassion, care, I remember my dad, too, in, in a compassionate moment. When Michelle and I came back, I think from uh, teaching in Africa, and I'll, I'll end with this and then continue with the other Brahma Viharas, the next talk. In, in those days, in the mid-80s, there wasn't, you know, TSA and and uh, custom and border control, and you could pull right up in the curb and pick up your passengers at Honolulu Airport or anywhere in America. So my dad and mom always liked to pick us up, you know, and there's a flower lay place you stop at first and at Honolulu Airport and buy lays. Uh, they would do that, and then they'd drive up and wait for us to come out of the exit with our luggage. So, you know, we came out and we'd been away for some time in Africa teaching and we had our carts with our luggage in them and uh, and the car was pulled up and it, actually it was our car. It was the first and only car that we'd ever um, bought brand new. An old classic um, uh, Jeep. Cherokee. 
and uh, and there my dad was, you know, proud to drive up in our car. And my mom and dad came out with the lays. My mom gave me a lay, and I parked my luggage cart against a, a big column. And then um, and then my dad went to give Michelle um, a lay, and he took his he took the cart, the luggage cart, you know away with one hand. But he couldn't quite give her the lay with the other hand. So he let go of the luggage cart. And and the curb is sloped. So the cart went sliding right into the behind the back door of our new Jeep Cherokee. Black and gold. Nineteen ninety four. And it made a big dent. And in in immediate, you know, my response was kind of horror and you know, <coughs> tightness and tension and fear and anger. My dad's immediate reaction was, oh, whenever you see that dent, you'll remember me. <laughs> it's exactly what happened. We never fixed the dent. You know, just a little touch up, but we left the dent there. And, and until we had to get rid of the car a few years ago, it was always there, and it did exactly as my dad promised. It reminded us of him, you know, in that lightness of compassion. So the last thing I want to leave you with tonight, and you'll hear it a lot from Michelle and I, compassion is a very pleasant feeling, tone, emotion. Sadness is something else. Sorrow is something else. But an actual moment, experiential moment, or glimpse of pure karuna, compassion, is a very, very pleasant feeling tone, emotion. As are all the Brahma Viharas, but sometimes we're not quite sure because compassion is so close to grief and sorrow. So I want to leave, I want to leave you with that tonight and let's just sit for a moment and feel within the part of us that's the poor farmer and the part of us that's great joy what are they saying to each other Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.